Wonderful to see you in the house of the Lord this morning. Direct your attention to the Word of God. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and we pick up there in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. In this discourse, Jesus has just told his disciples that unless their righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, that they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That was the verse immediately before where our text today starts. So Jesus then begins, and he's going to give six examples of how he will tell them they are to understand the law of God. Not just the Ten Commandments, but some of the things that flow from the commandments. So the Lord now is opening up this notion of the righteousness. And he tells them there's got to be an righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, that's quite a bar to meet in a way because the scribes and the Pharisees were the very men who in the days of Christ there in, in Judea were the ones who really understood the law and taught the law. They were the ones that led the people in the keeping of the law. Uh, roughly these two groups, scribes and Pharisees, there's a different way to uh, assign the parties that were around in Jesus' day. There were several of them that had strong particular distinctives. I won't spend much time, but the scribes were the ones that really gave themselves to the letter of the law. They were the ones that kept the law, copied the law, and they were the ones that studied the law. There were a large number of these men from the tribe of Benjamin. You remember when Benjamin was born, his name means the son of my right hand. And so they were scribes. As a, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a Benjaminite. So there were, there were people that really studied the law carefully. And they had a heritage and a tradition among what they understood the law to be. The Pharisees were those who not only studied the law, were not so concerned necessarily about all the fine points of interpretation, but they were concerned about application. You know, you'll see that in every church. There's some people who want to get into the nitty-gritty of the word and really learn and parse out all the verbs and really learn everything they can about the details and nuance of the word of God. And that's wonderful to study like that. But then there's some who say, no, but it doesn't matter unless you live right. It's not enough to be a hearer of the word. You've got to be a doer of the word. So then there's a party that emphasizes conduct. And that's the way the Pharisees were. The word means that they were the separated ones. And they wanted to make sure everybody understood that they were separated from the masses, the hoi polloi, and their understanding of the word and their keeping of the law. In each case, Jesus had something to say to the scribes that were so much into the minutia. He told them that they had forgotten all about the spirit of the law, even if they even knew of the spirit of the law, because they were so enmeshed in the letter of the law. 
And also the Pharisees were so much into living and showing that they keep the law and all of its particulars that they had become outward in their holiness and their righteousness. And they were doing what they were doing to be seen of men. And that's a little bit of an oversimplification of the parties, but Jesus is working against a background of men who understood the law, but had for so many centuries, from the days of the giving of the law in Moses, around 1500 BC, to the time of David, when the law of God was, was published and was put into psalm form. So we had the Pentateuch and the psalm in the, in the, in the early prophets, then all the way through to, the, that's about 1,000 B.C., all the way through the days of the kings, all the way up to the days of the Babylonian captivity, around 500 and something uh, B.C. But from the days of the Babylonian captivity and the restoration under Ezra, there had come to be a guild that were, that were scribes. They were, many of them, they were priests. They were the tribe of Levi, but they, they had learned these things, and they were very devout in every way. When they were in Babylon, as we mentioned a few months ago, we were studying about the captivity. In Babylon, they didn't have the temple. They didn't have the sacrifices. They didn't have any of the things that they had back in, in Judea and in Jerusalem. But what they did have was the Scripture. And so they became a people of the book, and they began to gather in synagogues to study the Word of God. And, and these parties of uh, very skilled men got to where they interpreted it. And so their interpretation of the rabbis, another generation, another generation, they began to interpret it. They began to put hedges around it. They made quite an elaborate ordeal out of understanding the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. We read the Ten Commandments just a few moments ago in our liturgy. And so Jesus is now, against that background, going to tell his disciples, those that follow him, those that have taken up their cross to follow him, those that are born of the Spirit, those that are truly citizens of his kingdom, he's going to give them some idea of what the interpretation and the understanding of the law was, was really like. And so he's telling them that really you've got to interpret and understand the law of God much better and Keep it much more faithfully than even the scribes and the Pharisees, or you won't even enter the kingdom. And so then he begins, and he has several examples, and here's the very first one has to do with the commandment, thou shalt not murder. So notice Jesus says to them, you have read, uh, let me see, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you will not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Notice Jesus did not say, you have read in the law of Moses. He said, instead, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Do you see the difference? If Jesus said, you read in the law of Moses, but I tell you, we have a different understanding then if you've heard it that it was told of old, you see the removal, the second and third removal of the law? In other words, this is what's been taught. This is not necessarily what Moses wrote. And if Jesus had said it was written in the law of Moses, and quite often Jesus would use the term it is written to substantiate some, something he wanted to say. But he didn't say that here. 
He didn't say it is written in the law of Moses. He said instead that you have heard that it was said by those of old. So what Jesus is here to correct is the tradition, the teaching, the exposition, the understanding, the interpretation of the law of Moses by those preceding generations. He's here to correct what had become a pretty complex system of rules and regulations. The traditions of men had become substituted for the commandments of God. But Jesus contrasted there in that next verse by saying, but I say to you. Now we saw last week that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it, not to loosen it, not to slack it, but he came to fill it and every jot and tittle will be fulfilled. We saw that in the text just above where we are today. Jesus came and I only got to about half of what I wanted to tell you about how Jesus fulfilled the law, but he fulfilled it at least in its mediatorial work, in the work of a prophet, priest, and king. We went over that last week, the, the ways in which Christ fulfilled those three great offices as the mediator, the one between God and man as the incarnate Christ. But even more than that, there's a sense in which he came to fulfill means he came to fill it with meaning, with relevance. He came to put new wine in new wineskins. And this is what we have now before us here. Before we move too much further, we need to have an introductory word about the law of God. The law of God is used in the New Testament in many ways. In fact, just in the book of Romans, it's used in several senses. It could be just the Ten Commandments, like we read this morning, the law of God. It could be the whole book of the Pentateuch, that is the law, the five books of Moses, the first five books. It could be the stipulations that were not only in the law, but that came to be added along. Sometimes the law of God can infer, refer to the entirety of Scripture. The law, the prophets, and the writings are all subsumed under the word of law. And sometimes the word law, not necessarily today, but it'll be used just in the, in the sense of a principle, like the law of gravity or the law of supply and demand. It'll be used in that sense. When Jesus is talking about it here, I'm pretty sure all he has in mind is that strict code that we know is the law of Moses. Now it's the Ten Commandments, but it's also the book of Leviticus. It's also the book of Deuteronomy, which the word dudo means the second giving of the law, nomos, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. So all of that is subsumed under what Jesus is talking about. And it's interesting that we need to know what the law of God comes in terms of its uses. I'll just simply state these. I think most of you are very familiar with them, but but Theologians have kind of worked it out over the years, and I think you can see it unfolding in, in the New Testament apostolic gospel preaching, that the law of God is, first of all, that norm or that standard that is over all of creation. It was the law of God that is part of the creation. It was put into the heart of man. Things operate in a moral sphere according to the law of God. To violate the law of God is to bring some malady or some curse or some, some disability or some illness or hardship upon the race. And so the law of God is, covers all creation, every person, every place, and all of time. 
In other words, everyone is under the law of God, even the worst pagan and the most ardent atheist is still under the law of God. He's responsible to it, and he'll be judged by it. And regardless of what he thinks about the law of God, he is under the law of God. And the law of God reigns over all the earth. And, of course, we know that ideally and finally in the new heavens, the new earth, i.e. the consummation of the kingdom of God, there will be that law. It won't be any different. We'll still have no other God before us in eternity. (laughs) We still won't make any graven image in eternity. Everything you can think of will have the tables of the law will be the fulfillment of the felicity and the bliss that comes from keeping that law. Don't get sidetracked, Ron. Move along. The second uh, good use of the law is that it is so particular in its holiness that it shows us our sin. In other words, as we read the law, we realize we don't live up to it. We fall short of it. We kind of miss the mark. We get out of bounds of it. Sometimes we set the law completely aside. Sometimes we take the law and twist it and pervert it. Any number of ways, and by the way, I've just defined about four words for sin in the Old Testament and the New. It means to ignore the law, to disobey the law, to miss the mark of the law, to set the law aside. We do, that's how we treat the law. And in so doing, before long we find out that we really don't keep the law and can't keep the law. So that drives us then to despair. We see that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so now we need a gospel. And the gospel comes in two false ways. One false way the gospel comes and says, well, let's get with it now. You've got to need to straighten up and, and get your resolve in place and clean up your life. And you need to obey that law. And if you'll obey that law and you'll reach that standard, you'll be saved. That's legalism. It's a system whereby it's believed that if you keep the law of God, you'll be saved by it. Oh, I preach that. That's what the rich young ruler thought he had done. That's what uh, um, Nicodemus had looked at. Anytime you're looking to the keeping of the law, you have to deny its detailed holiness. You have to lower the standard. You have to reinterpret it. You have to do a lot of things to that law to bring it down to conform to your fallen nature and to make yourself think you've kept the law and therefore you're okay with God. And people do that in mental gymnastics all the time. They usually do it by comparing themselves to someone else. Well, I'm not perfect, but look at this guy. He's the sinner. You know, look at, look at the, you know, the mass murderer. And so when we look into the perfect law and see it for what it is, we realize we cannot keep it in order to be saved. And that's the gospel. The gospel comes and says that our substitute, our representative, our head came and kept it perfectly for us on our behalf. There's another gospel that comes, and this is a good gospel. People like this one. It's the gospel that says, well, the law's been done away with it. Just read it there in the Bible. Read the book of Galatians. Read the few verses out of context. The law's been destroyed. The law doesn't apply to us. We're free from the law. Oh, happy condition. God doesn't hold us accountable for that anymore. We got grace. We got salvation. God loves everybody. Everybody's saved. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Preach it. It's wonderful. Sing about it. It's wonderful. 
We're not supposed to keep the law, they say. That's antinomianism. means against the law. It's a teaching against the law. No, the law of God has never been set aside, never been loosened, and never been abrogated. It's never been canceled, never been annulled. It's been fulfilled. Christ came, and he not only fulfilled the positive stipulations of the law in his life and in his obedience, his active obedience, but he has received in himself the curse of the law. And read your Bible a little more carefully. It's the curse of the law from which we've been freed. The gospel tells us that Christ has borne the curse. The curse of the law is the soul that sins, it shall die. The curse of the law says, in the day that thou eatest of it, thou shalt surely die. The curse of the law is if you do not keep all the words of this commandment, you shall die. And so that curse, that condemnation that comes to us as lawbreakers has been borne by our substitute Christ. And in his passive obedience, as he hung upon the cross and endured everything that was given to him by sinful man and by a holy and just God, all of the wrath, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God brought forth a situation where men by wicked hands crucified and slayed the Son of God, but thereby accomplishing a redemption and atonement for us. And so that's the true gospel that corrects the antinomianism, and corrects the legalism. So that's the sense in which we're saved. But there's a third use, and this is where it applies to us. How many times have I said in this little discussion we've had that we're talking about believers? If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Christ and your conscience tells you you really don't know the Lord as you should, and that you're far from God, and that you never really trusted in Christ as your Savior and substitute, then I'm not talking to you from this point on. We're talking to believers. We're talking to men and women who have taken up their cross to follow the Lord, that have come to Him for rest, have come to Him for salvation, have laid their lives down for Him and said, Lord, I am Thine, take me. Who have realized the depths of their sin and the need they have of a Savior and have flown to Christ for rest. It's like that song we just sang, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me or I die. The filthiness is, needs to be washed by the atoning blood of Christ. If you've experienced that, if that is your standpoint, then we are talking to you because there's another use of the law, and that's what Jesus speaks to, and that's what the apostles speak to, and that's the use of the law that says now the law becomes something wonderful good and holy and righteous to us, it becomes the standard obedience, the standard of obedience for the new creature, for the citizen of the kingdom of God, for the one who is a new creation in Christ Jesus. And John delights and says, the commandments of God are not grievous, because he had heard the Lord himself say, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so the keeping of the commandments of the Lord are our guide to obedience. If you think about the very giving of the law by the Lord was an act of grace. Because now we know what pleases the Father. Now we know the standard of holiness. Now we know the standard of righteousness. So when we hear thunderings from Zion that says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We know what it means and 
we are impelled to move toward that holiness, recognizing the filth of our sin. And it keeps, it keeps the, the believer in the constant mode of repentance and faith. You're always repenting of your sins because you see them more clearly each day. The more you learn about the perfect law, the more you understand how imperfect you are, how much more you need. So you end up needing to come to Christ not just one time in a revival meeting or a youth camp, but you need to come to Christ daily, maybe even hourly. Come for saving forgiveness. And it leads us to faith. We realize that that's all we're doing is trusting the Lord. We're not trusting our own righteousness because it's not there, but we're trusting the Lord for our salvation. And we are believing and hoping completely in Him and Him alone. So it's that standard of obedience that puts us in the, the mode, constantly in the mode of repentance and faith. And I'll close with reading one verse of Scripture. And it's the way Paul sort of describes the contrast between those of us who have been born of the Spirit of God by regeneration, by new birth, being born again by the seed of the Word and the Spirit of God, and how we relate to this law. And there's a, a, a phrase in there you need to hear, and it is, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And let me just read it for you here as, as we wrap up. It's Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read about half the chapter there. So bear with me, and this is our conclusion. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh." in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The word of the Lord.